Frederick Beekner, who I love, said this. Every morning you should wake up in your bed and ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? No better still, he said, don't ask it till after you've read the New York Times, till after you've studied that daily record of the world's brokenness and corruption, which should always stand side by side with your Bible. Then ask yourself if you can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ again for that particular day. And if your answer is always yes, then you probably don't know what believing means. I've been taking comfort in these words for several years now. In fact, I'm positive I've read them to you before. Because while I may be a pastor or a professional Christian, as some people may see it, (laughs) for a living, I have, believe it or not, all the same doubts and questions as any of you, and my answer to that daily question, can I believe it all again today, isn't always yes. Maybe if it were as easy as sticking to the Bible, keeping my head in the clouds, it might be different, but that pesky responsibility I believe we have to be present in this world here and now, has me paying attention to what goes on in the news. And yesterday, we had our country's 249th mass shooting in 2019, and this morning, we woke up to 250. 250 times this year, people have been killed in mass shootings. 250 times this year, people have been wounded and forever traumatized. 250 times, families have lost their loved ones, tragically and too soon. 250 broad conversations on mental health and gun control and racism and sexism and xenophobia and nationalism. 250 times that nothing has really changed. So, can I believe it all again today? Can my spirituality sustain me when every politician and person in between is sending thoughts and prayers? Is this the same stuff my faith is made of? What does it even mean for your heart to be with someone? So I'm not sure I can say yes today, guys. And I find comfort in Beekner's words because he goes on to say that I'm not crazy for feeling that way. He says at least five times out of ten the answer should be no because the no is as important as the yes, maybe more important. The no is what proves you're human in case you should ever doubt it. And then if some morning the answer happens to be really yes, it should be a yes that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. End quote. See, that's the kind of yes I want for myself. The kind of yes that might take more wrestling and questioning and overall work in the long run, but the kind of yes that has depth. The kind of yes that has traversed a whole range of emotions and experiences, not just the surface stuff or the good stuff. I need a yes informed by abundance. I'm hoping you do too. 
So I've noticed this growing trend in my personal theology lately. My understanding of God and my role as a person of God in this world is becoming more and more informed by what I call the abundance paradigm. And this week's gospel lectionary seemed to provide the perfect opportunity to write a sermon about it because in today's text we get the parable of the rich fool. In this parable we have a man who is having a completely inner dialogue revealing to us the work we've got to do so that our outer actions reflect our inner landscape. They are in sync or they should be. This work that I'm referring to is a part of our resurrection work, that kind of overall work. So whether we're doing inner work, that mystic work of sitting at the feet of God, or whether we're doing prophet work, our work in the world of bringing the kingdom of God to earth now, all this work, inner and outer, is a part of our resurrection work, the work of new life, abundant. So the dude in the story is having an inner dialogue that is affecting his outward actions. The conversation he's having with himself is driven by ego, which is apparent based on his complete absorption with self. He cannot see outside his self, outside his desires. In fact, he is blinded by them. He sees nothing else. We often cannot see outside ourselves. And this scarcity mindset tells us that we're in constant danger of loss. We see this in our lives personally, and we see it in our society. It is reflected in our immigration policies, in our healthcare system, in our obsession with guns and violence beyond rational control. Scarcity tells us we don't have enough physical resources. It tells us there isn't enough status or success to go around. It tells us we don't have the ability to face the nuances of life or to deal with hardship and pain. But you guys, this is the scarcity mindset. It is driven by ego. It is not driven by spirit. And as a people of faith, we've already concluded it's a liar, partly because this parable has taught us so. And it's not just this parable either. We've seen this theme woven into Jesus' teachings all summer long as we've been following Jesus through the book of Luke. The Good Samaritan was a pinnacle example of scarcity versus abundance. The religious leaders were operating under the scarcity paradigm, worry for their physical safety, worry for their status, worry for their time. But the Samaritan was operating under the abundance paradigm, sharing his time, money, resources, love, mobilizing others to do the same. His actions revealed an inner assumption that there was enough. There was enough provision to go around. But how do we change our inner dialogue? That's like the hardest thing on earth to do, right? How do we create a consistent bent towards spirit things while abandoning all those ego voices along the way? Surely this is a lifelong, hard as hell, complicated pursuit. How do we do it? And I think Jesus showed us through the story of Mary and Martha. We sit at the feet of God in defiance of everything else, in defiance of our schedules, 
in defiance of our little faith, in defiance of the craziness taking place all around us, in defiance of our fear and our anger and our doubts, in defiance of even our traditions and orthodoxy. We tether ourselves to the Christ mystery and learn to become one with God. And by the way, all this means is we pray. (laughs) When we are regularly connected to God, We become in tune with the truth of Imago Dei, us created in the image of God, each one of us. We become in tune with this truth on a mystical level, which only means we don't understand it. This truth leads us to spiritual excavation, sifting through the things of ego and discovering the spirit of God already within us, compelling us to action. Mary, the story of Mary and Martha, dared to reach for this connection for herself, despite the fact that she was a woman, despite the fact that she shouldn't have even been in that room during that teaching moment, despite the fact that it was socially inappropriate for Jesus as a rabbi to have been instructing her. Together, Mary and Jesus defied all those religious and social norms in order to prove a point that's still relevant to us today, which is that each one of us is responsible for our own direct connection to God. No pastor or parent or friend or mentor or podcast can do it for us. We are responsible, we have permission, and we are empowered. Sitting at the feet of God is the posture we take in order to avoid the rich man's fate in today's parable. It's the posture we take so that our inner dialogue becomes informed by things of God as opposed to things of ego. This posture is our entryway into the abundance paradigm. In this paradigm, we become radically generous people. This means we have made an inward shift. Radical generosity is more than just what you do. It means we've made an inward shift and we've come to a place of true belief that there is enough provision to go around, whatever that provision may be. This shift is made known by inevitable outward action. We become generous with our time, resources, love to anyone in need of it, like the Good Samaritan. We are continually generous toward God with our attention and connectedness, like Mary. Unlike the rich fool in today's story, we become outward-seeing people. We become radically generous people, which is the antidote to the perpetual greed that drives our power-driven, self-driven, stuff-driven world. So whether we find ourselves with actual material wealth, like the guy in this story, or some other kind of wealth, whether it's in the form of societal privilege or education or time or gifting, we don't wield these forms of wealth for the benefit of our own use, success, or security. Instead, we discern how to best contribute what we possess to that resurrection work. We look outside ourselves so that others can know new life and abundance. This means that we hold everything we've earned and everything we've been given and everything we've been gifted with lightly, and we position ourselves with open hands toward the center, which is God, Under no circumstance do we tighten our grips. We become like little children, and we learn to share. 
the more I think about it, the more I feel certain that this is the definition of faith. Trust in and surrender to abundance, which I define as God's never-ending, unfathomable, unconditional, no conditions, love. Thinking and feeling and doing, so living, within this paradigm is what it means to be rich toward God. And it always, always, always involves love of God and love of neighbor, the two greatest commandments, and practicing both of these with a posture of radical generosity. Love is the priority, which means it becomes awfully hard to not actively address the problems of our time, to not take them on as our own personal responsibility. It becomes awfully hard not to empathize with people seeking refuge at our border. It becomes difficult to continually fictionalize all of these mass shootings. It becomes really, really tough to unsee the white supremacy flowing through the variety that pump oxygen-rich blood into the heart of our government. Because love is the priority, and anything that blinds us from loving in this fullness is not of God. As I come to the end of this parable, I can't help but linger on God's response to this man's ego-driven scarcity mindset. You fool, God says, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? God's only response in this parable expresses a deep acknowledgement of the unexpectedness of life, which feels eerily fitting in light of the tragedies of the past 24 hours. God's response to the temptation of self-absorption is a call to generosity, and the call is urgent. God's tone is urgent. So Zach said something couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, in his communion meditation, which you should go look on our Facebook page. I've been stewing on it for weeks. He said that Jesus died because of humanity's scapegoating system. And I just could not get that out of my head. I've really been, thank you for sharing that, Zach, and it's on Facebook. Go check it out. It's a really good thought that he presented. But when Jesus died, it revealed to us, in one pivotal moment, the corruption of our own human structures. The same scarcity-driven structures that we see today that create and sustain all our isms and phobias are the same ones that kill Jesus, too. We recognize this, but we don't just swallow it. We, little old micro-us actively work to dismantle and abandon these macro domination systems. This work is the definition of resurrection work because we are actively abandoning things of ego, which is to say things of death. This is how resurrection is made known to us. It's how we become resurrected ourselves. In this way, we cannot die. This is our hope. This is our truth. And it's also the reason that I can say yes on those few mornings that I do. I am reminded through the teachings of Jesus and my participation with Christ and resurrection work that the things of death don't have power over us, not real power. 
we live within this abundance paradigm, the more willing we become to say yes, or the more willing we are able to say yes. The more it feels natural to us, the more it makes sense. When we move away from scarcity thinking, from ego thinking, things of death, we move into abundance, a place of new life fueled by God's never-ending love. And as hard as it is, we are compelled to face what happened in El Paso yesterday and Dayton early this morning. We're compelled to face what's going on at the border. We're empowered to offer real support, real help, real advocacy in whatever ways we can. We are weary. Yes, we are exhausted. But we are also empowered because resurrection does its thing and it expands us, making us capable. Spirit in us, God with us, we are expanded. So we say goodbye to fear. Goodbye to shame, goodbye to unproductive anger, goodbye to greed, goodbye to ego, and hello to abundance. Ask me again tomorrow, but this is my abundant yes this morning. It didn't come easy, but it was choked out with confession and tears, and hopefully the laughter will come soon too. Amen.